0: Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust Podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And with me today, as always, is Simon Elliott, head of investment trust research at Winterflood Securities. We're going to talk about the announcements and some of the drama that's been going on this week. There's always a bit of drama in the investment trust world, that's one of the things that makes it interesting. Uh, But let's kick off by asking uh, you, Simon, about the market. What's happened this week in the market? What's going on? Well, it's been a positive week for the UK. The
1: UK market this week, uh, albeit probably only just, so the FTSE All Share ended the week up about 0.4%, but it was a better week for the investment company sector, so that ended up nearly 2%, uh, and it was a week that we saw the sector average discount narrow from about 3% to 2.2%. But just to put it all in a bit of perspective, certainly year to date, investment companies have lagged the wider UK market. So investment companies up about 4.7%. And that compares with a return of nearly 11% now for the UK market. But actually, it has been a very strong year for the UK in general. Uh, And certainly compared with the the rest of the world, global equities are probably up about 7%. So it's one of the few years you can say the UK is punching above its weight. But certainly the the market's attention remains focused on uh, inflation expectations and what the possible response will be from central bankers in the US. We're starting to learn about the Biden administration's plans uh, for tax, tax increases, and one person has observed that uh, the US now faces the prospect of higher interest rates, higher inflation and higher taxes. So I suspect there are a few people in the US a little bit nervous about that particular combination. But clearly the pandemic is never far from our minds and uh, there seems to be uh, better news emerging from India. Certainly the rate of new infections obviously declining there, but in the UK obviously a big question over whether the Indian variant will derail the reopening plans.
0: So that's a lot going on. And, of course, we had a little bit of political drama in the UK as well, with Dominic Cummings uh, having his seven hours of testimony, but that doesn't seem to have uh, shaken the markets in any significant way so far. Quite interesting. There's some interesting comments he made, actually, about not about the pandemic, the health aspects, but also about how they were going to deal with the cost of the pandemic, which uh, is an interesting issue. Uh, But we can talk about that another time. Let's move on and talk about corporate activity. And we're going to start off with... um, The situation at Strategic Equity Capital, that's S-E-C, where there's been, as we recall, two two shareholders have been pressing for some changes there. But what's the latest in that uh, on-running saga? Yeah, that's right. So we
1: did have that uh, development back in March uh, that you mentioned there. The two shareholders who requisitioned a general meeting to consider a continuation vote. Uh, That continuation vote was passed. 82% of shares were voted in favour. But the board at that time said it would look uh, at some of the issues raised, in particular the discount level on which this particular investment trust traded on. So this week, uh, the board have come back uh, and their proposals to tackle the discount are two contingent tender offers. Uh, and the way that uh, contingent tender offers work is that they are triggered by a particular set of events. So the first contingent tender would be triggered if the shares trade wider than an average discount of eight percent over the twelve months to the thirtieth of June, twenty twenty two. So the clock hasn't started ticking on that one. Uh, and just to put some perspective around it, uh, strategic equity capital strain on discount about twelve percent at the moment. The second contingent tender offer would be if over the three years to the thirtieth of June, twenty twenty four, if it underperformed the FTSE Small Cap. Uh, X investment companies index, and that is the fund's benchmark. So if it underperforms that on a total return basis, a 15% tender offer uh, would be triggered, and that would be at a 3% discount to NAV less costs. So it's those two tenders in, in aggregate obviously represent 25% of the share capital uh, potentially as it stands today. And we'll see if that does the trick if that mollifies shareholders enough. But it's worth noting, Ken Whitton, um, uh, Gresham House has been responsible for this investment trust a relatively short period of time. He took on responsibility back in September last year, since when the NAV is up about 47%, uh, which sounds quite impressive, but actually it is behind the FTSE small cap index,
0: which is up 66% in that period. So is it unusual to have two contingent tenders running at the same time? I mean, what's the value in doing that? I mean, you have either should have one or the other, what you would naturally think. And what about the discounts at which these tenders are going to be made? Is that standard, not 3%? That seems a little bit higher than some I've heard of, I think. So to take the second question first,
1: the 3% discount, I mean... You know, a 2% discount is not uncommon. Sometimes it's NAV less costs. I mean, there are variations on, on the theme. I think what boards like to put in place is that uh, the, the, there's an advantage by having a, a tender at a discount of 3% to ongoing shareholders because mathematically they will receive a little bit of an uplift to the NAV. So marginally, it's possibly an incentive uh, if you were you know equivocating slightly to, to remain invested. The idea of having two contingent tender offers is slightly unusual. Um, You're absolutely right. We have seen uh, contingent tender offers uh, when there's a couple of, you know, it might be that they're triggered by underperformance and or uh, a wide discount. But to have the kind of two in place, I suspect what the board are trying to do here, they're, they're recognizing that actually there is a relatively new investment manager in place. I mean, you know. Ken took over this in September last year. So I think it's reasonable to give him a, a decent period to, to prove his worth. So three plus years feels like a, a relatively decent period. Uh, but in terms of the, the the current discount where it stands at the moment, um, I think they realise that there's kind of shorter term pressure on that. And then therefore
0: to kind of give it a year seems to make sense. So I can see how they've got there. Well, how has the market sort of reacted to this? Has it had a chance to, uh, to, to show what it thinks? Well,
1: I mean, the average discount of strategic equity capital over the previous 12 months is um, nearly 19%. And it's currently uh, on a discount of 12%. So it's kind of moved in the right direction. Clearly, there have been a few corporate developments on this one as the year has gone on. Um, But just to have a look at that 12%, the the weighted average discount for investment trust companies, investing in smaller companies, UK smaller companies, is probably about 5.5%. So it's still
0: uh, significantly wider than its peer group. And Gresham House has also been in the news somewhere else in the market this week. Uh, so can you uh, update us on that? That's
1: right. They're also responsible for an investment company called Gresham House Strategic. And there's been a few things going on with this one. But the, the development this week is that the lead manager, uh, a chap called Richard Staveley, he's actually resigned and he's leaving uh, Gresham House with immediate effect. The board noted its uh, disappointment with this development and and made the comment that he'd made a significant positive impact since he joined Gresham House to manage uh, Gresham House Strategic. But the board are considering the implications for the future management of the portfolio and they're going to make another announcement
0: uh, in, in due course. So it's certainly one to watch. And what does uh, Gresham House Strategic do? Where does it sit? What's uh, what's its uh, style and uh, objective? So
1: it's not uh, altogether dissimilar from Strategic Equity Capital Um, but uh, it has a different lead manager. or It has had a different lead manager and it invests uh, kind of further down the market cap size scale. So there's not a particularly significant overlap in the portfolio
0: at the moment. And we might as well mention in passing at this point, we could also mention uh, what's been happening at Odyssean Investment Trust because the manager of Odyssean is the former manager of strategic equity capital, as it happens, I think. And the the two shareholders who are looking for action on the board of strategic equity capital are also big backers of Odyssey Investment Trust. So uh, we might as well slot that one in as well, but they seem to have had a rather better week. They
1: do, yes. I mean, um, they would have been delighted with the events of this week, not least because they saw two bids uh, in one day for some of their portfolio companies. So um, they've got a significant holding in Spire and another significant holding in Vectura. So they're both about five, five and a half percent positions of their portfolio. And on the same day this week, being Wednesday, though both companies received bids. So, unsurprisingly, both companies' share price went better. That was good for the NAV of Odyssean and, in fact, good for its share price as well. And it promises to be um, an interesting week for Odyssey next week. So, we have the, um, the quarterly and, in fact, combined with the annual review of the FTSE All Show and its constituents, we find out the results of that review on Wednesday evening next week, and that's based on share prices at the close of Tuesday uh, and Odysian is uh, one of the candidates to go into the FTSE all share. And uh, if it is successful, it will be become part of the FTSE uh, small cap as well. So it will be waiting to see uh, the results of that review very
0: closely on Wednesday evening. I guess they'll be pleased by the, the news of these two takeover bids because their whole style of investing is, is is based on the premise that they try to value companies as a private equity firm would do. That's their kind of one of their selling points. And one of the ways that's vindicated is if you actually see Uh, companies you're investing in being bought at a significantly higher price. That rather validates your method. Though, of course, it creates a vacancy in the portfolio, which then has to be replaced when they get taken over. So you've got to go out and find another one, which is uh, going to do just as well. But I'm sure they'll be pleased with that. The manager there is uh, Stuart Widdison. I had an interesting conversation with him a few weeks back. Let's move on and talk about another situation where the board is having some issues, put it mildly, and that is the third point investors... T P O U. We mentioned them a few weeks ago because they, the board has announced some measures to try and reduce the discount there. This is a a trust that is managed by uh, Dan Loeb, a high-profile U.S. hedge fund guy. So, why don't you start with telling us what's going on there? Well, this week came the news that Asset Value Investors,
1: and uh, they are best known for running two investment trusts, AVI Global Trust and the AVI. Japan Opportunity uh, Investment Trust, but asset value investors who own 10% or just over 10% of the ordinary shares of Third Point, they published an open letter to that investment company's board of directors. And basically, it set out their concerns over Third Point investors' persistent discount. And also, um, they suggested that the recent strategic review recommendations fall, quote, woefully short of necessary structural changes They also had issues over governance, too, and they made um, some quite interesting comments on Daniel Loeb. And what they're, in fact, proposing is is changes to the investment policy with a periodic uh, offers to return capital to shareholders at NAV. So I think they're talking about quarterly redemptions up to 25% of, of the shares in issue. Now, they've requested a general meeting to vote on these proposals. The situation is complicated a little bit because of the share structure of this particular investment company without getting too technical Um, There's, in fact, two different types of shares. There's a B-share that uh, covers off 40% of voting rights, uh, and that was set up at the time of the company's launch um, to satisfy US jurisdiction requirements. Uh, But what it means effectively is that asset value investors 10% or 10 plus percent holding um, doesn't have the same worth that it would normally do. So they're trying to to get around that by asking the vote code, the B-shares, to reflect their shareholding in requesting this general meeting. So they've, they've kind of put a deadline of the 4th of June on this. So we'll find out uh, next week exactly how this one plays out. But uh, for people who are interested in corporate activity in general, I would recommend that they read the letter from uh, Asset Value Investors. It's written by a, a chap called Tom Trina, who's been part of that team for some time. And it's actually, um, I think it's a very well-written letter personally. He sets out his case very well uh, and actually makes the contrast between some of Daniel Obe's comments about corporate activity on some of the targets that he's gone after uh, historically versus his reaction when AVI have come knocking on his door. So uh,
0: a good letter from Tom. There is some strong language in there. I think something that was rather unusual that I'm looking back over letters that, uh, to shows that I've read. I mean, for example, I'm just going to give you one flavour. There's a passage in which they say, well, given Mr. Loeb's demonstrably unveiled contempt for shareholder rights and good governance and the open disrespect shown in a public forum to the chairman of the the trust, uh, how can shareholders have any comfort that the promises made in 2021 will be adhered to in 2024, given the increased influence associated with his shareholding? I mean, that does, of course, raise another issue, which is, I think, one of the points that uh, Mr. Labour was made is that if you, you know, if you didn't like the structure at the beginning and you don't like me, then why are you a shareholder in this, uh, in this trust? And um, I noticed that uh, AVI say that they are acting on behalf of some other institutional investors as well, who they believe share their views. But they do. Activism is one of the things that AVI, you know, promises to do. So I guess they were primed for a fight. But how would you assess who's got right on their side here? No it's a very good question I mean I think you're right about asset value investors it's 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 been
1: quite interesting how they've stepped up their game in terms of uh, being prepared to be an activist shareholder in recent years obviously the the Japanese fund that they launched a couple of years back it's very much about that but in terms of, kind of the rest of the market what you can see through the Avi Global trust it's clear that they've they're really prepared to sink their teeth into these holdings they've got, and Pershing Square, actually, another not dissimilar vehicle, they've had a go at that one. And it's interesting. I mean, they they definitely have an impact. In fact, in their letter to the board of Third Point, they set out the things that have happened uh, following their campaign to move the story on. But I think what we're seeing now is that they're prepared to be more public. And, and, you know, to your point, they're trying to corral support for their views. But, um, you know, certainly the market seems to have taken this one quite well, um, this is a US dollar-denominated stock, but uh, since Asset Value Investors' letter has been published, the share price is up 5%. So it would seem to suggest that the market believes that there is something will come of this.
0: Yes. Well, it will be. this will be another one that will be interesting to watch. It does seem to be the case. I mean, I, I'm just observing this. I'm not making any uh, comment about it in, in that sense. But it does seem to be the case that where you, know, you have managers, uh, particularly from the US, particularly high-profile ones, particularly ones who are you know, engaged in quite aggressive behavior themselves, you know, there does seem to be quite a lot of tension between, uh, or can be quite a lot of tension between those high-profile individuals and the boards. And the boards have to really kind of flex their muscles to keep these very strong personalities in check. I mean, would that be a fair comment? I'm thinking back to, uh, you know, our friends at uh, Gabelli Value++, plus plus and and maybe Pershing Square will come into the same, uh, same equation. Would you... Uh, would you have any thoughts on that, Simon, or would you just rather leave me to make that comment? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean, what I would say is that
1: I think one of the, the merits, one of the attractions of investment companies is the fact that you have independent boards. And uh, I, I think it's good when independent boards demonstrate that they are clearly independent. I think there are circumstances where it becomes a little bit difficult. And, and clearly, when you're dealing with larger-than-life personalities, such as Bill Ackman or, or Daniel Loeb or whoever it might be, then, then I think the board have probably got their, their work cut out. But this has got to work. This is, as I say, one of the key attractions of investment companies.
0: Yes. Well, I had a final quote I ought to give from this. I mean, it's just, it is extraordinary. Rare. I just can't remember anything like this before. Uh, they talk about the call that they had with, uh, with Mr. Loeb. They had a webinar where they were talking about those of us listening to the event as it unfolded were subjected to an extraordinary rant by Mr. Loeb in the last five minutes. And then those comments were excised from the official recording suggesting either that, so they say, this I'm quoting, Mr. Labour was embarrassed by his own unprofessionalism and unintended candour as to his views on shareholder rights and corporate governance, or that his marketing team were embarrassed by their boss. Well, <laughs> I don't know where we're going to go from here with this one, but uh, I guess we'll have to keep tabs on it and see whether it might actually turn out, as you say, to be a very good thing for shareholders or even, you know, to get involved in this uh, in this latest little Barney. Perhaps that's understating it. Let's move on to Fundraising. And let's talk about, first of all, Ashoka India Equity, AIE, who I think have made an announcement. They have indeed. Yeah.
1: So they've announced uh, that they're looking to raise more money. So this will be through a a placing of a subscription intermediaries offer, uh, which is all kind of standard stuff. They're looking to issue up to 125 million shares. The results of that issue will be published on the 16th of June. And basically, it will be priced on the back of the share price as of the 15th of June, plus a 2% uh, premium. And those new shares will be expected to uh, start trading on the 18th of June. But it's an interesting story, this one. So Ashoka India Equity uh, was launched back in July 2018. It was a relatively Modest IPO, uh, £46 million. I mean, at the end of the day, it's good to get these things away, so not to be sniffed at. But actually, since then, they've performed very well. So it's got to focus on mid- and small-cap Indian equities. It's managed by uh, an outfit called White Oak Capital Management, and they're based in Mumbai. But um, since that period from launch, their NAV is up uh, nearly 57%. And that compares with uh, increases for some of their nearest peers. So Aberdeen, New India is up 19%, India capital growth up 12%, and JP Morgan Indian up 6%. So um, they really have significantly outperformed. Uh, And funnily enough, they are trading on a premium at the moment. So it'll be interesting to see how the market reacts to this one and how much money they manage to raise.
0: I don't know for sure, because I don't follow the Indian market that close, but I guess there might be at some point be some. Obviously, some capacity issues here. I mean, Indian small cap, I don't know how big the market for Indian small cap shares is, but there must be some issue around capacity. But I'm sure it's more than 46 million anyway. So good luck to them. Let's see how they get on. Let's also now talk about DGI 9 infrastructure. That's DGI 9, not surprisingly. Tell us about what uh, they're saying. They only came to market recently, but they're looking to raise some more money, I think. That's absolutely right. Yes, they're looking to raise £100
1: million in new equity via a placing at 105p. uh, And that represents a 7% discount to their share price prior to the announcement that that they were doing this issue. Uh, The placing closes on the 7th of June. And uh, yes, to your point, they, they only came to the market back in March. At the end of March, they raised £300 million through their IPO. And it is interesting because it follows quite hard on the heels of um, Cordiant Digital, which is their nearest rival, uh, and also a fund that only popped up this year. They IPO'd back in February, raising £370 million. And only about a week or so ago, they announced they were looking to uh, issue a C-share and raise additional funds of £250 million. So there does seem to be well, they would hope quite a lot of interest uh, in this particular area of the marketplace. I mean, DGI Nine have made it clear that they've got a pipeline, and that's obviously very important. How you're going to deploy the capital, uh, which includes the US, UK, and Northern European data centres. Um, they're talking about 200 million pounds of opportunities under active discussion, which could complete within three months, plus an additional 400 million pounds uh, of opportunities that could complete within 12 months, and. Two billion pounds in a longer-term pipeline, so uh, they're clearly quite happy that they
0: can get the capital to work. Yes, yeah, so this particular trust is uh, managed by a firm called Triple Point, not to be confused with Third Point, as sometimes I have had made that mistake in the past. Uh, which is the one we've just been talking about, Dan. This this is a, uh, a more of a specialist firm. So this appears to be going very well. I mean, that's a lot of money to raise for uh, for those two trusts uh, if these are successful. Um, obviously there's still a lot of appetite out there for any kind of infrastructure offering that uh, offers a, a good yield and uh, long-term prospects.
1: Yeah, that would appear to be the case. I mean, if you look at the, the, the premium ratings on which they're both trading on, I mean, Cordian's on a, on a 6% premium at the moment, Digital 9 on about a 9% premium. So it would suggest that, uh, as you rightly say, there is demand uh, for this type of approach.
0: Okay, well, let's talk about another IPO, which, uh, again, has been successful. And this is Taylor Maritime Investments. We mentioned that in the last couple of weeks. Uh, This is TMI and TMIP. Tell us how they got on with their their IPO. Yeah, well, they were looking to raise
1: $250 million and they raised $254 million. uh, And they made the point that they were uh, oversubscribed. Um, so it's a, an interesting one. This it's got a, a US dollar class and a sterling class or a sterling quote, I should say. So it's all one portfolio. So that was certainly successful. Uh, and just to remind people, they're looking to generate an annual dividend yield of seven percent once they're fully invested and target an NAV total return of uh, between ten and twelve percent per annum. Um, so the proceeds will be invested in secondhand ships, and in fact, uh, even it, it started trading uh, this week, so it's up and running. Uh, And they've already acquired their initial seed assets. Uh, So 17 vessels were acquired for $183 million. uh, And that was part financed by the issue of some shares as well. So uh, a decent IPO. It looks like it's been well supported. uh, And again, they've got the money to work uh, relatively quickly. It's trading at $1.05 or 74.5p at the moment. So north of its issuance price. Uh,
0: Just to remind us, there's another similar-ish trust in this sector, which is uh, Tufton Oceanic, SHIP for short. And is that trading on a premium as well? How is that one doing in comparison? Is this a sector that's suddenly becoming rather popular? Yeah, I think as we have discussed before, SHIP had a bit of a
1: renaissance last year and particularly more towards the end of last year when people realised that actually shipping would uh, would be an area that would benefit from reopening. So Tufton Oceanic assets uh, is trading on a premium. It's a $1 and seven cents, and that represents a one percent premium
0: to its NAV. Okay, so we'll move on, and we'll talk about uh, Tritax Eurobox, who have been um, burnishing their green credentials. I believe what have they been up to?
1: Yeah, so they provided some details about a senior unsecured green bond that they're issuing, and that was a uh, five hundred million euros, uh, and that's got a life of uh, to June twenty twenty six. That bond issuance was significantly oversubscribed. Uh, it's So it's obviously got a five-year, 10-year and an annual coupon of 0.95%. So unsurprisingly, given that rate, the issue will significantly reduce the fund's cost of debt and it just helps diversify the funding sources to the debt capital markets. But I think it's an interesting development. I mean, there's obviously an awful lot of talk uh, about ESG at the moment and, and uh, investment strategies around that. Um, but one of the things that people are observing that actually – the issuance of green bonds, which by definition they are specifically targeted—a particular investment—is um, a better way, certainly for investors, to target their capital to have a positive influence. So, in the case of TriTax Euroboxes green bonds, uh, they've made it quite clear that the proceeds will be used to finance or refinance, in fact, a portfolio of eligible assets, uh, which obviously fit with the green finance framework, uh, and that includes standing at assets. As well as contributing to a pipeline of new developments as well.
0: I guess it is worth just noticing if you are debating this issue about future inflation and so on. And here we've got a okay, it's a short dated bond for five years. It's only rated uh, triple B minus, I think you say, and um, uh, and yet it's only got a coupon of 0.95%. I mean, (laughs) these are signs of the times, if you like. That doesn't suggest that people are too concerned about what's going to happen to uh, interest rates and so on in the in the short term uh, at all, does it? I think that's
1: right. And I think it also reflects that actually there's a huge amount of money um, that wants to be deployed and people thinking they're absolutely doing the right thing uh, and that they you know tick the boxes in terms of kind of green investment and sustainable investment. Uh, and so um, I think
0: that's probably one of the reasons, one of the key reasons why that level is so low. Interesting. Okay, so let's move on to talk about some results now. Where we've actually got Avi Global Trust. We mentioned Avi already because of their rolling up their sleeves and uh, putting on the boxing gloves as far as uh, third point is concerned. But uh, how have their own results been? Yeah, no, good set of
1: results. So this was interim results to the end of March. So that six-month period in which time their NAV total return was up uh, just short of 27%, and that compared with a rise of 13.5% for the MSCI All Country World X. Uh, U.S. index in share price terms, actually, um, they did even better, up twenty nine, just over twenty nine percent. But perhaps unsurprisingly, they had a, a strong contribution for the those companies in their portfolio that were hit hardest by the pandemic, but rallied uh, from November last year. So companies such as Jardine Strategic and Exor. Um, and actually, the managers have been adding to some cyclical exposure, particularly since the second half of of 2020. So, in the report, they talk about companies such as Associated British Foods, uh, Shaftesbury, uh, Capital and County, and uh, a few other property plays as well. But it didn't all go right for them in the period. Um, the detractor. Uh, From the numbers was their uh, basket of Japanese special situation stock. I think uh, we we talked about this before. The Japanese market's been a little bit trickier, uh, certainly in the first quarter of this year. And that basket uh, represents 15% of NAV. But the managers believe it
0: continues to offer exceptional value. Just out of interest, I mean, with this particular trust, which I think used to be known as British Empire Securities way back in the day, Do they have a discount control policy? I mean, how do they, if people come along to them and say, well, you know, you're campaigning for a reduced discount at third point, what are you doing about yours? What's their policy on that? Well, you you obviously make a good point. They don't have a formal
1: discount policy, uh, certainly as far as I'm aware, but they are prepared to buy back their own shares. So they bought back about a million shares, actually, in that six-month period. And certainly they're trading on a discount of about 8% at the moment. And that's I mean, the numbers obviously have picked up of late, and that 8% discount compares with an average over the previous
0: 12 months of about 11%. So they have seen a re-rating of late. While I'm on this topic of discounts, I might actually just ask you just to explain again, uh, because it's interesting when you say, you know, you order a discount of about this or X or Y, but, but how do you calculate the discount? Because if you look at your figures, Simon, they, they tend to be slightly different from those which you'll find, for example, on the AIC Website. So, are you saying that calculating a discount is art, not science, or is it just that you're using different uh, methodologies here?
1: Yeah, no, so it's a good point. So, most investment trust companies, particularly those that have a uh, underlying portfolio of, of listed securities, they provide an NAV every day. They publish a daily NAV. Obviously, for those investment companies who've got less liquid asset classes, so property, private equity, infrastructure, invariably you get the NAVs on a kind of quarterly basis. But uh, what we do and most people do in the in the marketplace, certainly for those with portfolios of listed equities, um, they will have an estimated NAV. So basically you anchor your NAV estimate on the last published and then you you know see what markets have done and what their top holdings have done. So that's obviously an art, uh, not a science, um, but that will probably um, explain why there
0: might be a little bit of a, a difference between different people's numbers. But the other point is, how do you calculate the effect of debt on the NAV? You might mention that as well. Uh, because there are different ways of accounting for that. I mean, there's you, you you go for the fair value of the debt. Is that fair? Yeah. So the, the industry
1: standard in terms of NAVs, it, it's with debt at fair value. So you're repricing uh, the debt that's on an investment trust company's balance sheet. And you also include the income, the, the revenue that they're building up over a period of time as well. So again, there are different ways of doing it. Some people will look at uh, debt at par. So that's the kind of nominal value of the debt. Um, So again, you can see some variation. Sometimes you might have subscription shares, not very often these days, there might be a dilutive impact as well. So I mean, we have had instances where um, some investment trust companies publish up to about eight NAVs on on a daily basis. So there is a margin for confusion out there. But certainly if you look at, um, I mean, you know, the NAVs that are quoted uh, in the Financial Times, for instance, uh, on a
0: daily basis, that will be NAV with debt at fair value, including the income. Yeah, so it's not quite as straightforward as it might appear in, in principle. So we'll move on and we'll talk about uh, Caledonia Investments. Uh, they've had some results out. That's Caledonia CLDN, a long standing trust which uh, started as the family office of the Kaiser shipping dynasty. Uh, how have they been getting on?
1: Yep, so they had their final results for the year to the end of March. Their NAV was up just about 26% in that time. That was just slightly behind the FTSE all share. That was up 26.7%. Their annual dividend was up nearly 3%, and that represented the 54th consecutive year of increase. But in terms of the different components of the portfolio here, there's effectively three different sections. So there's the quoted equity portfolio, and that did rather well in the period, up 30%. There's the funds portfolio, uh, which is slanted towards the US and Asia. That was up 35%. That performed very well. Uh, and then there's a private capital portfolio. Uh, and that lagged a little bit. It was up 23%. And I think we talked about this, actually, a week or two ago when they published their NAVS at the end of March. But the situation there was uh, they had a holding in a company called Buzz Bingo, uh, which perhaps unsurprisingly, given the times in which we live, has uh, struggled very much. And unfortunately, they had to write off their investment in that particular company, which um uh, was in the order of about £69 million. Pounds. So that was the detractor. But in that private capital portfolio, there are five UK businesses, uh, a number of uh, which are actually performing quite well at the moment. So they have holdings in seven investment management. Uh, they also have another financial company, Stonehenge Fleming, and both of those are going well, as is a company called Deep Sea uh, Electronics. So I think they're, they're quite quite excited about the prospects within that portfolio.
0: Okay, so we'll move on and we'll talk about a trust called Majedi. They've had some interim results. Let's start off by talking about how those results look. Yep, so they had interim
1: results out for the six months to the end of March. In that time, the NAV total return was up nearly 16%. That compared with a rise of 18.5% for the FTSE All Share and, in fact, 12% or so for the the FTSE World All Country Index. In share price terms actually did a lot better, up 38%. So just if people are not familiar with this particular investment trust, it's uh, invested in a number of um, strategies run by Majedi Asset Management, uh, which is a, a separate company, but in which uh, the investment trust does have a holding. And in fact, that was probably a little bit of a headwind in the period because that 17% holding that they've got, the investment trust has got in Majedi Asset Management, was actually written down from $31 million to $25 million. Uh, and that reflected the fact that uh, unfortunately, Majedi Asset management lost effectively a client in the former St. James's place uh, who decided to move their segregated accounts uh, away from Mojedi. So that hit the valuation of, of the business, and that was the the big headwind.
0: We might also mention in this context, though, the uh, the latest results from Edinburgh Investment Trust because they are now managed by uh, Mojedi as of uh, last year. That's absolutely right. And uh, yeah, funnily enough, actually, they performed quite well. So uh,
1: these were final results, again, to the end of March, in which time Edinburgh Investment Trust saw an NAV total return up nearly 35%, and that compared with a rise of 26.7% for the FTSE all-share, uh, in share price terms up 26.7%. Their dividend has been rebased, and we knew this at the time that Majedi was appointed. Um, So it's moved from 28.65p to 24p, which Majedi and the board believe um, is an achievable, sustainable dividend. It's not covered. It won't be covered for a while, but they think they can get back to that and build on that. But what they've also done is declare a special dividend of 4.65p for this year. So in other words, all in all, shareholders will still get the same level of dividend income. But in the year, detractors included companies such as Tesco and Smith & Nephew. Both of which the manager is still uh, happy to hold, still think they've got good prospects. But they got uh, positive contributions from uh, Ashted Weir, Anglo American, and actually Gearing was a real positive as well. So, of their 8.1% excess return, 3.5% came from Gearing, and, and the Gearing stood at about 7% at the end of March. But there was some good commentary in the manager's report about how ESG is a very important part of their approach, and how actually they'd sold BP as a result of that because they thought there was a lack of conviction in terms of the energy transition plan, in terms of BP's management. And also, the manager believes that the portfolio is well set for a rising inflationary uh, environment with its exposure to banks, resources,
0: and food rate retailers. How has the market taken the, uh, the changes at uh, Edinburgh Investment Trust? It used to be run by Mark Barnett at uh, Invesco, uh, who's now obviously left Invesco. Since the uh, change in manager, how has the market reacted? Obviously, the trust has performed reasonably well, but uh, how, have, how have the shares performed?
1: Reasonably well, I think, would probably be a fair comment as well. In fact, probably a little bit better than reasonably well. So we've seen the discount narrow. Um, it's probably trading on an average of about 10% over the past 12 months, and that's nearer to about a 2 or 3% discount at the moment. So that's certainly moving in the right direction. You know, I think talking to Majedi this week, I think they're quite positive. Um, they think they've got a, some good runs on the board, uh, to use a, a cricketing analogy, uh, and they're very happy to go out and start telling their story. And clearly, the market shift this year has kind of played to what they do. So I think they 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 think they've had a good start on this one.
0: Yes, I think that's fair to say that. I perhaps I'm a little ungenerous there to say there's only reasonably good results. Um, just surprising, though, if you think the Majedi have taken on this, what is now a very big trust. I mean, it's still a big trust. It's uh, uh, got significant assets, and yet uh, that's... Uh, I guess they're not getting a management fee at this point, are they? They was part of the deal. I don't know if that's right or not. But um, I'm just surprised that the you know you write down the value of Majedi Asset Management uh, because of the loss of St James Capital, yet they've actually acquired this significant new uh, contract mandate. Yes, I mean I, I don't know off the top of my head how big a proportion of
1: JDS Asset Management's business was the St James's place, but looking at the impact on the on the income, because that's how one of the, the key. Uh, numbers that build up the valuation of that business. Um, It was clearly quite a significant element of the income. And to your point, again, off the top of my head, I can't remember exactly the management arrangements with Edinburgh Investment Trust, but what invariably you find when you win a new investment trust mandate is that you often give a fee holiday for a period of time. So like the first six months or something. And I suspect, I wonder if that's possibly been the case with Edinburgh
0: Investment Trust. Yes, I'm ashamed to say I can't remember that either off the top of my head. Right. Next, also in the same UK sector, BMO UK high income. Uh, What have they had to say?
1: Yep, they had their annual results out again to the end of March and a very strong period for BMO UK high income. Their NAV total return was up 37 percent. That compared with a rise of uh, 26.7 percent again for the FTSE all share, and in fact, in share price terms, they're up nearly 41% as the discount narrowed in. So, um, very positive set of returns. Philip Webster uh, is the investment manager responsible for this one, and uh, a very interesting manager's report uh, when he talks about the opportunities that he think exists uh, in the UK marketplace. Talks about um, some of the financial companies he's held, such as Bruin Dolphin, Intermediate Capital, Close Brothers, and some of the UK house builders he's been happy to back. Uh, which has obviously helped his performance in that kind of rebound, reopening trade, uh, and also some of the tech names that he's managed to smuggle into the the portfolio as well, despite being a UK equity investor. But it hasn't all been been kind of one way. Certainly, the portfolio revenue has declined, as you might expect from a portfolio of UK equities, um, but it's declined by 22%, which I would suggest is not as bad as some of the others, frankly. And uh, unsurprisingly, the, the dividend was uncovered. It was about 75% or so. Uh, and they've also been prepared to, to buy back shares. But certainly a decent set of results for this
0: one. And then also in the uh, UK equity income sector, we have Lowland uh, Investment Company, LWI. This is a uh, Janice Henderson Trust. Uh, what have their results been like? So interim results for the six months to the end of March,
1: in which time they generated an NAV total return up 33%, and that compared with a rise of 18.5% for the FTSE All share in that time. The share price total return uh, even stronger, up 39%. So a good result for James Henderson and Laura Fall, the managers of this one. Uh, The revenue per share, obviously revenue is still um, a tricky business. The revenue per share came in at 128 p. And year on year, um, that that was down from 14.5p, but uh, they've still paid a a total dividend for this period of 30p. So uh, good performance. And that reflects the bias to industrial and financial sectors and also the the manager's uh, value focus. So things that work for them, including companies such as K3 Capital, Royal Dutch Shell, whereas uh, detractors including GlaxoSmithKline and 4D Pharma. But also, um, it's worth noting that the uh, investment trust was 14% geared at the end of the period, and that reflects the manager's views that it's likely
0: the economic recovery is not fully priced in, nor is the improved outlook for profits. Well, we mentioned the UK uh, has been a very uh, good performer so far this year. Uh, just, Just check then on the ratings of these three we've talked about, BMO, UK high income, uh, Edinburgh Investment Trust and Lowland Investment Company. How are they regarded in the market at the moment, according to your numbers?
1: Yeah, According to my numbers, well, they've all seen a bit of a re-rating. Um, so that's obviously positive. Lowland's probably on about a 3% discount or so. Uh, at the moment, Edinburgh, not dissimilar, probably around about the same level. BMO UK high income has a slightly different Share structure, so they have ordinary shares, B shares, and, and units. But ballpark, they're probably on about a ten percent discount all told.
0: Okay, so let's move on. We'll go overseas now, and we're going to start off by talking about Henderson European Focus Trust, which has the suspended ticker of Heft. What have their results been like? How much Heft have they had? A reasonable amount of Heft,
1: I think it's fair to say. They had interim results for the six months to the end of March. Their NAV total return was up about thirteen. 0.6% and that compared to a rise of the benchmark of 11.9. Share price terms, they were up 17.2. So there's obviously a bit of heft coming through there. So a decent period for them. And the managers attributed that outperformance to some of the reopening beneficiaries uh, in the portfolio. So actually, John Bennett and, and Tomohara, the, the, the two managers here, always an entertaining report. Uh, that Some of those Uh, beneficiaries of the reopening trade of companies like Adidas, Carlsberg, Daimler, Ryanair. And I think the quote that I picked out here is that they said, uh, the consumer is a cold spring ready to live life again. If we are right that not even a bungling European Union can prevent that, we can look forward to its powerful effect on our portfolio
0: companies. Well, that's, that's telling us how it is. Okay, let's uh, move across to uh, JP Morgan Asia growth and income. I don't suppose they're going to be saying things in quite the same terms. But <laughs> what have their interim results been like? Well,
1: again, they had interim results uh, for the six months to the end of March. Uh, again, uh, a good set of results. NAV total return up 17.8% compared with a rise of 14.1% for the MSCI. All countries Asia x Japan index. In share price terms, uh, even stronger share price total return up nineteen point nine, and the outperformance reflected positive stock selection and strong performers, including Samsung Electronics, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, uh, and Oxy Biologics. Detractors including Budweiser Brewing and Maruti Suzuki. But uh, it's worth noting that this investment trust is differentiated from some of its peers by its enhanced. Dividend policy, so um, basically it pays one percent of its NAV every quarter back in the form of a dividend, uh, and that and, and probably its strong performance record in recent years has been a, a key reason one would suspect why it's trading on
0: on a premium. We've got it on about two percent premium at the moment. Okay, well, let's move on. We've got a few results to shift through. So next up is Chrysalis Investments, C H R Y, which raised uh, a lot of money quite recently. What have they announced? Yeah, so this
1: was a quarterly update uh, to the end of March. Uh, And again, Chrysalis, still the momentum is behind them. Uh, So their NAV was up 15% in that three-month period. And that reflects valuation increases for Klarna Holding, which uh, has had a lot of publicity. And that actually represents 20.5% of their portfolio now. So very key holding for this particular investment company, and also Starling Bank as well, uh, which is about 9% of the portfolio. So both of those companies going well. That followed uh, funding rounds for those particular companies. They've also got a position in the Hutt Group, so THG. That's about 9% of the portfolio. That detracted uh, as it's now a publicly listed company and its share price came down. But to your point, they are sitting on quite a bit of cash. 24% of the portfolio is in cash following uh, the recent £300 million fundraising Uh, But they're on the latter stages of due diligence on two potential new investments, uh, as well as uh, perhaps two follow-on investments. So expect that cash to be deployed
0: soon. Okay, and we move on to uh, Harbourvest Global Private Equity, HVPE, one of the better-known private equity trusts. They've had some annual
1: results. They have indeed. uh, Annual results to the end of January, in which time their NAV was up 30.4%. And that compares with a rise of 17.4% for the FTSE All World Total Return Index. So strong outperformance in NEV terms, though, in fact, in share price terms over that year, uh, they were only up 2%. So what worked for them uh, in terms of the NEV performance? Well, it was the high weighting to venture and growth equity investments, which represented about 36% of the portfolio at the period end. And particularly, they were quite exposed to technology. That was a key performance driver their technology holdings were up about 41%. I think we talked before about the IPOs that were seen um, in Europe and in the US over the last six months or so, possibly a bit longer now. And obviously, a a number of those originated from uh, holdings within the HarbourVest portfolio. So they were certainly a a beneficiary from that.
0: Okay, we'll move on and talk about uh, Hickel Infrastructure. We're working through some specialist trusts here which is a uh, very well-known member of the infrastructure grouping in the investment trust sector. Uh, they've also had annual results, so uh, this time for the year to the 31st of March. How do they look? That's right. So their NAV total return
1: in that period uh, was up 5.5%, but actually their NAV, so when you ignore the, the impact of paying out their dividends, that was actually flat uh, over the 12-month period, but it was actually slightly down from the, the end of September, so i.e. their interim results so what's changed here? Well, there are there are a number of kind of uh, negative impacts. Some of these are quite familiar with uh, what we've seen with other infrastructure plays. So the change in the UK corporation tax rate from April 2023, that had a negative impact as did foreign currency movements uh, and also some of their inflation uh, expectations as well. So there's a few hurdles for them to overcome. And um, possibly it's worth noting as well on their on their dividend side. And that's obviously a key aspect of all these infrastructure plays. So they achieved their target dividend of 8.25p, but actually the cover dropped from 1.14 times to actually 0.9 times. In other words, the dividend was uncovered. And actually, in terms of the guidance they're giving for their financial year 2022 and indeed for their financial year 2023, the guidance is to expect a dividend of 8.25p for both years. In other words, they're going to try and hold the dividend where it is and actually rebuild the dividend cash cover.
0: So I guess I have to say this is a relatively disappointing set of figures for this particular trust, which is, I think, the largest in the infrastructure sector. Um, but does the market still still love this one? Well, I mean, the premium uh, is still trading
1: on a premium of about 15 or 16%. And there was no discernible uh, sell-off in its share price. So I mean, look, the dividend's been preserved. They've hit the dividend target this year. Um, Obviously, there are a few headwinds, but at the moment, the market seems to be giving them the benefit of the doubt.
0: Okay, we'll leave it there. When we want to now, we quickly do some roundup of some of the property trusts, which have actually had results rather than NAV announcements. We tend to skip over those. Uh, Let's talk, first of all, about DRIP, DRUM Income Plus. Uh, I've had some interim results for the six months to the 31st of March.
1: That's right. Uh, NAV total return was actually down in that time, down about 5.5%. And that reflected a reduction in the value of the investment portfolio. Um, This one's got a few things to sort out, actually. It suspended its dividends last year, resumed uh, this year, but at a lower level. And actually, if you look at the portfolio, 53% allocated to offices, 24% to retail, 20% to uh, shopping centres. So there's probably a few things to sort out there. 90% of the rent was collected over the period. But the pandemic has had a, a to reduction in the total rent
0: receivable. Okay, so not so good. Let's talk about Picton property income, PCTN. These are annual results they're putting out to the end of 31st of March.
1: That's right, in which time their NAV total return was up 6.6%. So in terms of the total property return, that was up 7.3%. So that was ahead of certainly the MSCI uh, property index. Um, they've actually sold a retail asset uh, in the period as well, and that went out 30% ahead of its uh, book value at the end of March last year. So that, again, always gives a little bit of confidence when uh, these companies sell some of their assets at a high price at which they're carrying them out. Uh, they also received 92% of the rental income over the financial year, uh, and there's a further 1% deferred. But obviously, earnings per share, its it's been a tough backdrop for them. Their dividend for the year came in at 2.8p, and that was down from 3.5p for the previous financial year. But actually, the current uh, quarterly advance is now stepping back up, and they're at 91% of pre-pandemic levels.
0: Okay, so when we want to talk about residential secure income, R-E-S-I, they've had interim results to 31st of March. That's right, in which
1: time their NAV per share total return was up 2.9p. So they're fully deployed all their capital now that follow um, some recent uh, acquisitions. Um, There's also a good story in terms of their rent collection. There are about 99% of rent due has been collected in that six month period. Uh, They've declared total dividends of two and a half P. So in other words, they're they're in line, they're on track for their full year dividend target of five P and they expect to have a fully
0: covered dividend to be achieved in July this year. We're going to move on and talk about one of the trusts that is in one of the specialist areas that have done rather better, and that is Warehouse REIT, WHR. uh, And they've had annual results out for the uh, to 31st of March.
1: Yeah, and a a strong set of results as well. So their NAV total return was uh, up about 27.7%. That compares with a a target of 10% per annum. Um, So that certainly worked for them. Um, They also disposed of some non-core assets. They they sold 11 non-core assets, uh, raised £16.5 million. Um, They have raised additional capital from their investor base. So they raised £153 million in July last year and a further £46 million in February this year. In terms of their rent collection levels, they came in about 98.6% in relation to the financial year. Um, the earnings per share, in fact, was down, it was lower, but that's slightly misleading, to be honest, because it reflects the short-term dilutive impact of the recent equity issues. So they've declared a, a dividend a total dividend of 6.2p in respect to the financial year, and that's in line with the previous year and, in fact, in line with target as well. And they've said in terms of the financial year 2022, that they expect to pay at least 6.2p again. So, uh, you know, clearly a, a strong set of results, a very supportive market backdrop, the warehouses, uh, logistics centres very much in demand. And also they benefited from s- some value enhancing asset management initiatives.
0: Yes, you couldn't get a bigger contrast in between uh, warehouse REIT, which is obviously in the very promising warehouse sector. And uh, the friends at Drip who had only three percent in the industrial sector, which is not quite where you'd want to be, as it turned out in the past year. Um So, just looking back across these, how do they rate these different uh, trusts? I imagine that uh, Warehouse REIT is still on a premium, and some of the other traditional commercial property trusts are still on discounts. Is uh, that would be, uh, I guess, a fair summary?
1: Uh, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. So the Warehouse REIT fund that finds itself on an eight percent premium at the moment. Pictum Property. Yeah, certainly not the worst discount in town, but it, it, probably about a twelve percent discount uh, at the moment. Drum struggling a little bit on a sixteen percent discount, and then I think the last one we talked about was residential secure income, and that's on about an eight and a half percent discount at the moment.
0: And we also heard some news uh, this week from BMO Commercial Property, which had an impact on their share price. Uh, certainly, um, what was what was the news there? That's right. So
1: BMO Commercial Property announced uh, a property sale. So they sold a, a retail warehouse uh, up in Scotland, uh, for which they received proceeds of nineteen million pounds, uh, and that was uh, represented an uplift on their last valuation. So that's all positive. But what I think kind of moved the share price positively was the comment that they were looking to use the proceeds from this sale to buy back shares uh, in the uh, investment trust particularly if the high level of discount persists. So just to remind people, uh, BMO commercial property has probably been trading on one of the widest discounts. So over the last year, it's averaged a 40% discount uh, and certainly up until recently, it's probably been on about a 30% discount. So um, as I said, the market's taken this news positively and it's been re-rated, partially re-rated, certainly on the back of that. And now
0: finds itself on a 24% discount. So I guess that just gives an extra degree of confidence to the prospects. If you find that the trustees decided to buy back some shares, that certainly would, I guess, appear to be a positive. OK, so finally, let's uh, move on to talk in this property sector, talk about TR property. It's a slightly different animal. That's why we're talking about it separately. Uh, they've had annual results to the 31st of March. Uh, and how do they compare with uh, what we've heard so far?
1: Yeah, so a good set of results. Uh, NAV total return up. and that compares with its benchmark rise of 15.9. In share price terms, they did even better up 28.3%. So the fund was defensively positioned really at the onset of the pandemic, had overweights to areas such as supermarkets, healthcare and logistics, uh, industrial and that really drove its relative outperformance between March and November. Uh, Obviously, since then, Uh, we've seen kind of uh, property plays more consumer-facing that have done better. But uh, TR Property, Marcus Fairmudge has been running this one for uh, a number of years, a highly experienced manager, and this investment trust has a very strong long-term approach. So just to be clear, it is a portfolio of property equities, but in addition to which it does have some direct property exposure as well. And so their physical property portfolio, that was up 2.8% over – Uh, the financial year. And that really came from the the income side of it. But in in terms of rent collection, uh, they came in at over 90% for all four quarters. So for people who are interested in the property market, I would suggest uh, it's always worth reading what Marcus has to say. Uh, I remember he spoke at one of my conferences a few years ago, Uh, And he's always a good speaker, but he he distinguished himself on that particular occasion by managing to fall off the stage uh, towards the end of the presentation, Um, fell off the back of it, uh, which is quite an exciting moment, but an interesting fund and uh, certainly a very strong long term performance record.
0: I imagine, Maurice, I hope that that was because he was in his enthusiasm. He was moving around rather dramatically. You, you obviously didn't give him a big enough stage, Simon. That was the problem. You obviously <laughs> needed to give him something else to stand on. OK, before we go, just quickly mention, because it's just to keep up to date with the, the trust that we've been mentioning recently, um, the share price reaction to Acorn Income Trust, which we talked about very recently. What's uh, What's been going on there?
1: Yeah, no, that's an interesting one, actually. So Acorn Income, you may remember, have announced they're looking to appoint BMO as their investment manager and adopt a kind of global equity, sustainable investment approach. That was obviously subject to shareholder approval. And in fact, Acorn Income ended up as being the worst performing investment trust company last week with share price down 7%. So you do wonder whether not everybody thinks this is a particularly good idea. So maybe one to watch there.
0: Okay, so that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, Thank you again, Simon, very much. If you're uh, interested in talking about investing for income in the investment trust sector, I've just done a very interesting recording of a conversation with uh, Richard Curling of Jupiter Asset Management, who runs something called the Monthly Alternative Income Fund, which is a unit trust, only invested investment trust. And he's got some very interesting things to say about uh, how to go about it and what you can hope to obtain from uh, the kind of trust that he invests in quite interesting if you're interested in that but that's all we got time for this week uh, Simon they say it's going to be sunny weather next week we'll find out but uh, thank you for your time
1: this has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.moneymakers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle. Available now at the website.